Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? Barbie. My sister and I collected Barbies. We loved Barbie. Um, I had a friend who had um, that Barbie head where you could like pull her hair out and, you know, um, and then put makeup on her and then like push a button and her hair would go back into her head. And um, I just, I loved Barbie. And, you know, I I still have fond fond feelings for Barbie. Do you still have your Barbies? I don't. My mother did for a very long time, and she ultimately um, gave them away. But you know, I have good memories with my sister playing with our Barbies, and it's a, it's a you know, it's a brand that I feel um, childhood affinity for. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter and Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it. But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Allison Dew, the chief marketing officer and EVP at Dell Technologies. Dell was, of course, founded by Michael Dell in 1983 in his dorm room at the University of Texas, Austin. It is now Dell Technologies, a $101 billion in sales global enterprise with growth of 17% in the latest fiscal year. Allison has been at Dell for 14 years and has been CMO for the past four years. Her yearnings for a global career started early. Allison studied Japanese and French as an undergraduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. She later returned to Penn for an MBA from Wharton and an MA in International Studies. Allison worked on the agency side in Tokyo, we'll get into that, and she later worked at Microsoft before joining Dell in 2008. This is my conversation with a CMO who truly believes there is an innovator in all of us, Allison Dew. Allison, welcome finally to the CMO podcast. I understand when the pandemic first hit us in March 2020, I was skiing, by the way, that was an interesting scene, but you were in Australia and you end up spending much of the pandemic in Australia. So let's start this podcast with how in the world did you manage to lead global marketing at Dell in a very turbulent time on the other side of the world from your headquarters? in wonderful Austin, Texas. Hi, Jim. It's just so good to see you. I, I, you know, I, I'm so thrilled to be here with you. And um, probably the reason I was hard to schedule is because I was in Australia. But my husband is Australian. We have three kids in school. Uh, well, one kid's still in school. Um, and when the pandemic hit, I was in Austin and he was in Australia. We've been sort of going back and forth for a while. And I won't bore you with the long-winded story about the incredibly tight closure of the Australian borders, which was our own version of what do we do? And I managed to get into Australia in June of 20. And I was planning to come back in September. And I got the months right and the year wrong, because ultimately, I came back in September of 21. And, you know, Dell had been really early on what we were calling workforce transformation. We are a technology company, we sell PCs, monitors, all the technology that helps us work from home. And so we actually had a a foundation and a leg up, I think, when the pandemic hit in um, the spring of 20. But even even with that leg up, my situation ended up being pretty extreme. And I've always been a person who's been incredibly thoughtful about my time. So the way I managed to lead marketing through some pretty turbulent times was one, continuing that thoughtfulness about my time and also, frankly, being willing to get up at three o'clock in the morning. And so... Mm. One of the things when people ask me about global jobs, I always say, yes, it's amazing. There are amazing opportunities. And you also have to be willing to pay the bar bill, which is, are you going to make it someone else's problem? Or are you going to get up at three o'clock in the morning yourself? I did a number of those calls myself, those two and 3 a.m. calls. And it's not so it's bad. It's not so bad. So t- talk a bit more, Allison, about your thoughtfulness and how you spend your time. Give us some tips on how you do that. So I mean, one of the things and you know this well, is when you get into these jobs in particular, but I also think it's true at any point in your career, it it 
could be easy just to respond to other people's requests at all times. And there are always both more opportunities and more problems that any one person could ever handle. So one of the things that I try to keep a rolling list of is what are my long-term priorities? What are my short-term priorities? And being willing to be really quite ruthless about what's below the line and not responding to other people's agenda. The other thing I talk a lot about is not responding unnecessarily to other people's agenda, because sometimes you do have to respond. The other thing I say to my team all the time is, I don't reward arsonist fire people. So if you come to me and you say that the building is on fire, the first thing I will say is, is everybody safe? The next question I'm going to ask is, why is the building on fire? And sometimes there are genuinely unforeseen circumstances. But the example I use with my team for many, many years is the Consumer Electronics Show is the same time every year. It's always in January. Why, when we hit October, we'd be suddenly going, holy crap, what are we going to do at the Consumer Electronics Show? Because it's the same time every year. So we don't need to get panicked about that. And because we are so planful about those things, and I really believe that that's culture of my entire organization now, when something like COVID hits or the civil unrest in the United States in the summer of 20 and all of these very complex social issues that we face, you actually have some bandwidth to deal with the crisis because you're not dealing with things that are a crisis, but shouldn't be. Yeah. A leader once said to me, don't let your inbox control your outbox. And that's, that's exactly your principle. Now you were in Australia for a long time during the pandemic. Did you develop any uniquely Australian rituals? while you were there during the pandemic. I mean, I started walking more. I actually listened to a little, way more podcasts when the pandemic hit. And I certainly, and obviously cooking at home became the thing. And I had my son and daughter-in-law living with me at the time. My wife was in California. We were separated. She was with my daughter. But uh, but anything uniquely Australian you started doing? Did you start, did you start surfing or anything, Allison? I was lucky enough that we spent a lot of time at the beach. And again, if you get up at three o'clock in the morning, one of the advantages is you're done in the afternoon. So you have a window of sun that's, um, that's really kind of fun and unpredicted. Um, and, and so that's one thing that we did. And then the other truth, and I've talked to a lot of leaders about this is both Cameron, my husband and I had been global travelers at a scale and scope that I look back at now with a lot of questions for myself, starting with our personal health, but also environmental impact of the amount we were flying. And, you know, I've been traveling 200, 250,000 miles for for 20 years. I'm sure you are the same. Yeah, me too. You know, and so I'm, I'm really careful about saying this because this was true for us, but it's not universally true. For us, the opportunity to slow down actually served us well and served our family well. And then it gave me a lot of time to um, I'm a step parent. I'm a late in life parent. I would have said that I had empathy for working parents before. I would have probably been wrong. <laughs> wrong, you know. I would sort of. I think I did, but I didn't really comprehend it. So for me, that ability to slow down, whilst also um, really focused on how to manage my team and help manage the company through really turbulent times, was actually had some unexpected positives. I've heard from so many CMOs, many on this podcast, that their level of trust and openness and honesty with their team has gone way up. Now, yours was probably very high. That's the kind of person you are. But to hear that level of trust and understanding and empathy to go up so much with senior marketing teams, that's a real positive. Well, you know, one of the things uh, I think about a lot is... Um, you know, not all CMOs have communications in their organizations. I have both communications and now our ESG uh, CSR organization as well. And, you know, one of the things that I'd always said is, and you and I have had this conversation many times, you know, our employees are the face of the brand. I don't think we've always lived that, but we, we, said, we said it. And, you know, one of the things that became really important for the way I spent my time starting in March of twenty was that employee communications really rose to the top three of what I was personally doing. And I have a, an amazing leader who runs communications. You may remember JJ Davis. And she and I would always say, you know, if somebody had asked me in February of 20, is employee comms important to you? I would have said, of course it is. But I wouldn't have put it in my top three. 
And, you know, one of the things that we did was we dramatically changed the frequency and also the tone and the, lowered the formality of the way we were in communicating with our team members. And that has had a really positive impact, not just for my organization, but also for the company at large. And it's one of the things that I'm the most proud of because that has allowed us to humanize our executive leadership team in a way that I just don't think we understood that we could or how to do it instead of doing our employee quarterly meetings, you know, with 500 people in the room, 20,000 people live, but somehow optimizing for the 500 people in the room, which makes no sense. We were optimizing for the shared and equitable digital experience of now 60, 70,000 people who tune into these broadcasts. That's been quite revolutionary and unexpected. So this was in your top three. What were the other two? We had to dramatically redo and reshape all of our creative and all of our demand gen strategies. We, we ultimately had an unexpectedly good couple of years because people needed technology. But one, we were days away from putting a piece of creative in the U.S. around the soaring success of small businesses. You know, in the, the mm. April of 20, when small businesses were going out of business, that would have been incredibly tone deaf. So we shelved that. We did some, you know, it wasn't as high of production values. I think many CMOs, many marketing organizations did the same thing. And then we put a piece of creative in market that we didn't overrun. You know, I got a little sick of these in these troubled times. We're here, blah, 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 stuff that so many people did. But we just showed our small business advisors at home taking calls here, you know, and, and we ran it for a few months. So that's just an example of how we repivoted our both our creative and our demand gen. And then the other piece was how we navigated an incredibly complicated social environment in the United States, particularly, but also around the world. And that I'm sure people talk to you about all the time, that takes up an incredible percentage of my mind share. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, before we get too far into this great chat so far, I want to share with our listeners that we have a, an interesting history. I first met you when you were brand new at Dell. And in 2008. And my CEO at the time at P&G, A.G. Lafley, was on your board. And he introduced me to Michael and your senior marketing leadership team for best practice sharing and good stuff like that. It's now 14 years later. You and the company are absolutely thriving. And I believe it's one of the most inspiring and interesting transformation stories in modern business. So, Allison, how would you describe the Dell of 2008 that you joined versus the Dell of 2022? Jim, I mean, the short answer is completely different place. So much so that after 14 years, sometimes I have to pause and remind myself that it's a completely different place. But, you know, 2008, obviously that was a global financial crisis. It wasn't a great time for anybody. We had been through a series of tough business challenges ourselves. We also um, were in an industry that was being universally written off. So the analyst feedback at the time was basically that the PC is dead and nobody needed a PC and companies like Dell were basically irrelevant and going out of business. So, so one of the things I think about personally was for those of us who were able to st stick it out and work through that time, Ultimately, it's been incredibly rewarded. One of my peers has always said, you know, we were never as good as people said we were on our best day, you know, kind of in the early internet years, mm -hmm. darlings of Dell. And we were never as bad as people said we were on our worst day. At the same time, you know, when you have an employee base and people are writing about your company is irrelevant and you suck, I mean, that's basically was the headline. It, it, it is really hard to keep your team motivated on that long term. But one of the things that was a catalyst was we, when we went private in 2013, we had the space and time to accelerate a transformation that was already underway. And many of the things we did then was just get back to basics around business fundamentals. And then, you know, over time, we had some space 
until the EMC acquisition, I think six years ago, which at that time was a $67 billion acquisition, another extremely bold move by Michael. And we could come out that acquisition and the years of being private as a completely different company. So it, it, it has been really incredible. And if you walk the halls, if anybody was there, nobody's in the halls, but if you walk the metaphorical halls, you would find it to be a very different place. What do you think is the biggest difference in the culture from 2008 to now? We have more optimism. Confidence, optimism. Yeah, confidence, optimism. You know, you see many of these companies from a certain era, you know, like the run up to the early 2000s, companies that were part of that first push of the internet era who didn't make the next wave. You know, so we could have been written off at that time as a one hit wonder. And the, the I think, bravery and degree of willingness to sort of keep what was great in our culture and then also completely rebuild has given people a sense of we can do this and we can do hard things. And even when the pandemic hit, you know, a real sense of we're in it together, which I don't necessarily think we had in 2008. So optimism, confidence, I mean, you can't really have a winning business without confidence. It, that's it. Deloitte's done some research that confidence is an issue with CMOs. So I'd like you to offer one or two pieces of counsel from your experience, Allison, for those who are in the middle of a transformation or even at the beginning, they want to build an optimistic, confident, winning organization that attracts customers, attracts employees, attracts talent. What's your counsel? So first, I think I'm a big believer in the philosophy around radical candor, which is you need to tell people the honest truth. I mean, some of the things, your employees I'm, I'm starting with, some of the things where I really watched us go astray is trying to oversell a tough situation when inherently our employee best, our employees knew that that wasn't where we were. So you have to stake this bold vision, be honest about where we are, set the milestones, and then communicate more on an ongoing basis. We got that right. We didn't get this right. And, and, and not let cynicism creep into your own talk track. I mean, I think about me on my worst days over those 14 years, and I would say occasionally I let cynicism creep into my own talk track because, Jip, it was really hard and it required this perseverance and grit. So if there's an authenticity, that word is so overused, but there's an honesty. People know when they're being sold, yet they also need a vision. And so you can't just blah, blah, blah about all the that bad things. You have to do both. 14 years at Dell, that's a big chunk of your career. How are you, Allison, a different leader now than you were when you joined? First of all, if you asked me 14 years ago, would I be the, what, number one, would I be here 14 years later? Mm -hmm. Number two, would I be the CMO? I would say no, no. So, I mean, there's, I just didn't see um, at that moment in time that I would be here for this long. And the reason I have stayed is because I've been continuously able to take on bigger and bigger challenges over many years. And then ultimately, as I became the CMO, and the, the way I think that I am a better leader is I, on my worst day, I am a person who would personalize conflict and I could remember and I have a really good memory. So that's not such a great combination. If you can remember, remember all the things that people have done to wrong you and you personalize conflict that can show up as a not great combination. And so I've worked really hard on, I have to have an opinion for my organization and I may disagree with my peers, with other leaders across the organization. Marketing is often in the middle of competing agendas. And yet I can agree with now without making it quite so personal, which 15 years ago, maybe I wasn't so great at. Yeah, that's, that's, that's maturing, right? As a leader. No, that's, that's an important one. And I think I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I'm quick to personalize things and I learned over the years, don't do that. Part of that's an part of that's a strength, right? Because you're passionate about what you do. Exactly. I mean, it's it's you know the thing that I always say to people: your strength taking to an extreme can become your weakness. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was always great about me, I think, even then, is the passion. I knew that we could do so much better. I just just maybe wasn't getting people on my bus in the most productive way. Now, 14 years ago, you didn't think you'd stay at Dell that long, and you never imagined you'd become CMO. Tell us about your appointment to CMO about four years ago. Was it a surprise? Yes and no. By that stage in my career, I definitely thought I would be a CMO. It was um, about a year and a half after the integration of EMC, however, and I 
had spent a lot of my career, I'd been um, the head of marketing for the, the, the PC business for about seven years at that stage in the PC business. And I was not, and to this day, I'm not a storage expert. So I wasn't sure that the timing would work for me at Dell because I didn't have the industry expertise of an incredibly important and expensive acquisition target. Mm -hmm. And so I had the confidence by that stage of my career that I was going to be a CMO. I was a little bit surprised when Michael asked me to be the CMO of Dell. Did you feel prepared? Yes. When you were put in the job, you did feel prepared. Why did you feel prepared? Because I, this is the, in one hand, this is the benefit of being an internal promotion where I actually feel sorry sometimes for people who are, who are parachuted into the CMO job externally. I wasn't a storage expert, but I knew everything about the business. I have pride. I always say I'm a business person first and I'm a marketer second, even though I've spent my entire career only in marketing. And so I came into this job with a depth understanding of how the business ran and how the culture ran. I also had a lot of opinions about how marketing could do better, how marketing could be better integrated. You know, I have an organization that that spans from consumer up to the tippy top of enterprise, you know, and there's there's all kinds of different variations on this. On our worst day in parts of the B2B space, the parts of the team were kind of in the ladies and butlers business. You know, they weren't marketers, they were sales support. Well, we have enough of that. So I had an opinion about what marketing could do and I knew the culture. So my on-ramp was reasonably easy. I was reading some research yesterday, I think it was from Forbes, that the tenure of CMOs, which has never been great, but it went, went for a while from like two and a half years up to like four and a half or five. It's now down below two years again. Any thoughts on What's going on here? I have so many. Um, so one thing that I watch people do is they spend too much time on the CMO talk with their extended stakeholder set. So one of the things I think about a lot is I really believe that the role of marketing has not changed. It's how we do marketing has changed and the speed with which new practices and technologies are introduced has sped up. So I watch people get stuck on the latest skill, you know, seven, eight years ago it was programmatic media, or it's this piece of the MarTech stack, or it's, and there's always something and there's always a curve and they always commodity, they always commoditize and you have to know all of them, but I don't need to be personally an expert in each one of them. And the failure to retain the big picture and think only about the most recent trendy thing in marketing is frankly where I find so much of the CMO conversation to really fall flat. And I don't know why we need to do that. Like, let's talk about the business. And when I talk to my stakeholders, I don't talk about how we're doing marketing. I talk about what we're doing, what we achieved, what we didn't achieve, where we've got opportunities. But I don't go into the ins and outs of why my team and I made this decision on the MarTech stack or why we made a decision on creative. If I'm not qualified to make that decision, then get someone else in my job. Marketing is seen at Dell as far more important and mission critical than it was 14 years ago. That's my observation. How did that transition and that change in image happen over those years? I mean, it was a slow battle, to be honest. And one of the things when I became CMO, one of the things that I did almost immediately, and it's so stereotypical, but I think it's really important, is I did go through a zero-based budgeting process. And I actually ended up putting more money into mark, getting more money into marketing. But one of the things that I'm really proud of is the complete and total transparency around where we're spending our money and how and what's working. So we have a business credibility that we didn't necessarily always have. And that's one of the reasons when I say, I don't know that we do ourselves any favors when we use marketing speak to talk to business people. So for example, I don't talk about brand exactly the way many people do. I talk about short-term outcomes, meaning in-quarter demand, growing the buyer base, what we achieved, and long-term outcomes, perception, how people feel about us. This is demand gen, this is brand. 
But I don't want people to think that when I talk about brand, I just mean advertising, which amazingly, I think people still fall into that trap. So I, that's the, the really slow and steady repositioning marketing at the heart of the business work that not just me personally, but my leaders and I and our leaders' leaders have been on for many years. I run a program at Cannes every year for CMOs, and we always survey them before the program to see what's on their mind, what issues they're wrestling with. And this balance of spending and resources between, quote, performance marketing and, quote, brand marketing is a big issue. And how people make that decision, some of their anxieties as they make that decision are really, really interesting. You're in the middle of this. You have built a stronger brand than you had 14 years ago. And you're obviously, you're experts in performance marketing. In many ways, you were an innovator in performance marketing in the beginning. How do you make that balance? So, so one is this, this conversation about short-term outcomes, long-term outcomes is, is really core to how I think about it. My rough rule of thumb is around 65-35 or 70-30 because we have that, that's not formulaic and it's not consistent for all audiences. And, you know, there are moments in time where we flex one and take another down. We invested more. And this was my predecessor. And I think he did a really good job of this. When we formed Dell Technologies with the integration of EMC, we invested more money than we had in brand. And frankly, that helped our employees and our executives have a sense of pride. The creative was better than what we would have done historically. Frankly, we spent more on production values at the moment in time. You know, we, um, we've been a launch partner with Jeffrey Wright, and he has become something of a spokesperson for us. And, um, you know, you may remember Liz Matthews, who runs brand and advertising yeah. and a whole bunch of other things now. You know, she had a real vision for what she wanted the creative to be. So I think it's looking at all of those things together and then being willing to say and having the courage to say, well, we didn't get that right. Uh, but that investment, ironically, the investment in non-working dollars was probably an area we would have struggled with before because we would have been looking at like, well, we need to do it on the cheap and spending more money on better creative has served us really well. At the same time, you know, one of the things I think we've still got work to do is collapsing, collapsing, collapsing the relationship between consumer and B2B. And one of the things, Jim, that's very different from 14 years ago, very different, is the work we now do in consumer advertising, consumer marketing broadly is accretive to the overall Dell brand. We spent years digging out of a price-based years, out of a price-based mm -hmm. marketing approach. And you know now we don't do that, but we couldn't go from here to here. It's a really good example in lessons, I think, which is if you know you're over-indexed in performance marketing, you cannot change that overnight. And you know we went from, price, you know we would gradually decreased the amount of focus on price, but we didn't take the business in the short term because we didn't go from here to here. Now, you said a few moments ago, uh, you told us your top three, you know, during COVID. I'd like to hear more about your role now. And how do you spend your time? What do you value? If we looked at your diary, what insights would we take away if we observed it for two or three months? So for one thing that you would observe is that I do not do eight hours of meetings a day. I, I really believe in the need for time and space to think. And so one, one place that I'm spending uh, an increasing amount of time is around our, our ESG strategy. We set some very audacious moonshot, moonshot goals for 2030. And now, you know, by definition, moonshot means you don't always know how to achieve them. And so we are working now on, on how do we, achieve, how do we march to, towards those goals? I spend a lot of time on comms again, because I have a great partnership with the leader of comms. And there's a perspective that I have that cuts across the company that's really important because it is really, really tricky to be a technology company in Texas. So how do you navigate some, some of those complex societal competing demands? And then another one that I'm really focused on is how do we think longer term about the health of our buyer base and making sure we have a growing franchise? And my leaders are incredible. I've, I've spent a lot of time in the first two years getting the bench that I could really, really rely on in my with my leadership team. The other the, one of the places where I do still spend time is looking for seams across. I have a, I have a functional organization, so I had a 
I have a head of product marketing. I have a head of um, all regional marketing. I have a brand and creative and advertising and events. I have MarTech and I have communications and um, ESG. And and I I'm, I do still have to look for seams across those as strong as my leaders are. When I asked this question, you, you jumped to ESG and how important that is and how you have to personally spend time in that. I'd be interested, Allison, how do you make decisions about what to get involved with? I hear that again from so many CMOs. They're wrestling with that. There are so many opportunities and your brand makes sense to go into a lot of those opportunities. How do you choose? We did, we, and it changes in its dynamic, but we did a piece of work where we brainstormed basically every issue that we could come up with. We then looked at where do we have relevant voice? And we came up with a discrete set of issues where we do engage and a willingness to not engage in many other extremely important issues. And there are so many extremely important issues, but I watch companies almost kind of, at times I think stand for nothing because they're signing every letter, there's, you know, and we get incredible amount of pressure internally as well externally to engage in really important things. So mapping those issues is one thing. The other lens that we always put on our decisions is we do believe in an employee first communication approach. And how do we think about what are our most important stakeholders who are employees who are also dealing with these issues? How do we serve them? And I think that that has served us well because we were not getting called out for, you know, ambulance chasing on the most recent issue. How do you involve your employees? I mean, you just bring them in and chat with them. You socialize things with them before decisions are made? Not quite. I mean, we, we do actually ultimately make these decisions in a reasonably small and very, se- very, mm-hmm. very senior group of people. But what we have a very robust system of employee resource groups, and that has grown, obviously, in the last couple of years with COVID, people wanted to belong to something. You know, so I, for an example, am the executive sponsor of our Pride ERG you know, and one of the places where I spent some time in the first couple of years is not on the public face of pride, but on the back end systems that could help us create a better experience for L- our LGBTQI employees. And that's not as shiny and I'm, that's not as good. That's not going to be in the paper, but it's really important to that experience. And therefore, I care more about it than I do about being in the paper. What are you most proud of, Allison, in your four years as CMO? I am two things. I'm most proud of the culture of my organization um, together that we have created. It, it is a little bit ineffable, Jim, but there is a spirit where people are proud to be in marketing. They believe in our mission. They believe in what we're doing. That feels really different. Um, and then I'm also incredibly proud of the business contribution that we make. And, you know, I'll give you a very quick anecdote. There was an earnings call, maybe three, four quarters ago. I can't remember. One of the analyst questions was, you know, it, it, maybe the economy is turning down. Are you guys planning on cutting mar- marketing spend? And the CFO said, oh, no, we're not going to do that. We find that when we do that, we pay later, you know, which is always my point. Like you can cut it now, but you'll pay later. And, you know, my my phone blew up because for the team, that was a really important indicator of an acknowledgement that what we do matters, which I don't know we always felt. And just the fact that your CFO on his own in a high pressure situation talks about marketing spending going up means he knows what you're doing. He believes in what you're doing. He has a strong relationship with you and others. That's that's really, really critical. And and that's one way I think that advantage of being an internal promo into this role Mm -hmm. is I had support and I had advocacy even before I started. And, you know, you can see those, sometimes you'll see those job descriptions that go around where it's really clear that what they're looking for is they want to hire somebody in CMO name, whose job is to convince the extended stakeholders that you should have a CMO and you can read it almost in the description. And you just think, well, that sounds like a recipe for failure. What do you wish could have gone better in the last four years? I think we can always do better at learning faster from our mistakes. So it's Mm -hmm. not that I look at any individual mistake and say, we got that wrong. One of the things that I talk a lot about is how do you create a culture of extreme personal accountability without fear? 
And I've seen companies be on both ends of the spectrum where they have high accountability, but it's really a fear-based culture or, or there's no performance. There's, there's not enough attention to honest conversation. To me, it's always a cultural thing of when you learn, can you learn faster? That's the biggest thing that I think we've still got work to do. It's a great one. It's a great one to focus on as well. Right. And the balance of accountability and fear of failure, it's in every company. It's a tough one. It's humans, I think. Yeah, it's human. Absolutely. Now, you have an interesting perspective. We talked about, you know, the advantages of being an inside CMO. You see a lot of CMOs in your job, right? You, you do business with almost every Fortune 500 company. What, in your experience, Allison, you've been a CMO for four years, you see a lot of great ones and a lot of not so great ones. What makes for a world-class CMO now in 2022? I think it's that business customer focus first, which is... I, I'm I'm not a sports person. I don't do sports analogies, except I will for a second, which is understanding that we're all playing on a sports team and your role is super important, but how that fits together. So, you know, when I, when I say people could be a great, one of the things I see in, in um, CMOs who tend to fail is they're monofocused on one piece of the puzzle. They're focused on brand or they're focused on the creative, or they're focused on product marketing. or And the ones that I think are truly great are the ones who understand that you have to do all of those things and you have to understand them enough to bring them together. And you have to have leaders who understand all of those pieces together. And, and what I see quite frequently is, particularly for external CMOs, the easiest thing is to, to kind of get in and change the advertising or the brand. I mean, it, it's, I, I wince and you winced, but it's true. I still see it all the time. And maybe that's not what you need to do. And so maybe if you slow down a little bit in the beginning and understood the business better, you might have a better opinion. And then the other one that I see in that is it's possible that the people who in your organization already know what to do but there's some structural reason that they've been unable to do it. So if you're unable to, if you're able to unlock that possibility in your own organization, you might find your team already knows what to do. They just simply need some help getting alignment to go do it. Yeah. No one cares more than the team, right? Yeah. I've given this advice hundreds of times. I've tried to live it myself. When you change jobs, they're going to do a new assignment in a company. Go speak to every partner in every function and ask them how you could help more in your role as head of marketing or head of brand, whatever it might be. And then talk to your team about what you heard and the answers will be there where you need to focus. They will just be there. We're talking about relationships. The CEO CMO relationship is important. So is the CFO one and so are all of them, frankly. But you're CEO is obviously a very special human being. He's the founder. He's one of the most storied entrepreneurs of all time. Tell us what, and you've worked with him now for 14 years, what sorts of things do you talk about with Michael when it comes to marketing? There's a thread, which is I focus on the what and the business outcome, and I don't really get into the how. And so I, um, you know, the classic agency presentation where they spend like the first 15 minutes explaining what the ad is going to do. And you're like, but someone's not going to look at this for 15 minutes. I mean, and it's a stereotype, but it's true and it still happens. I don't do any of that stuff. I talk about here's what we've accomplished. Here's where we have work to do. We spend a lot of time on the ESG issues, as you can imagine. We we talk a lot about um growth and where we get growth and where we still have work to do from a growth perspective. And then, you know, one of the things that I'm really pushing on is how do we do, we've still got work to do to not show our internal seams. You know, we have a small business sales team with medium business sales team. You know, we've got work to do to get even better at not doing that and not showing those seams. Marketing is one of the few places that cuts across. That's the kind of stuff that I talked to him about. And I also spent a lot of time talking about my team, my leaders, my leaders, leaders, the culture, culture of marketing. Cause you know, you asked if I was surprised to be the CMO. I knew I was on the succession plan. I take this, I take my succession super seriously. And I think that's why we've gotten more stability over the last number of years is because we actually have a pipeline of internal talent. So that's the kind of stuff I talked to Michael about. How did you build the pipeline? So many companies struggle with that. 
and it's so important. And I think that that is a, a secret to success to have that kind of pipeline, to invest in that kind of pipeline, to have great succession planning. So the first thing, I mean, I made some pretty tough decisions at my leadership level pretty quickly, and I was pretty decisive about that. So that helped free up some oxygen. And I think then have because having leaders who are able to to um, collaborate and partner with each other, the way I've thought about it is my first job was to stabilize my leadership team. My job was then to help them start to stabilize their leadership team. Then, the, you know, to really think about it from a pyramid perspective. I've spent a lot of time over the last three years at the sort of manager level and above. I do a once a month leadership series about like, let's talk about leadership topics. It's not a business conversation. And, you know, my goal there is to really inculcate that much lower in the organization. And then the other one is we have, we do strategically hire externally, but I, I try not to at the most senior executive layer level, because chances are someone in your organization can do that job if you'll take a bet on them. And, you know, so as we've gone into new businesses, like telco is an example, we didn't have that expertise. So we hired there. That's fine. But, you know, I would consider it a failure if my most immediate leaders were external hires. Allison, I'd like to switch to your career path, your journey to Dell. It's a fascinating one, beginning with your education. You studied French and Japanese as an undergrad at Penn. So you clearly wanted to do something internationally. What were young 22-year-old Allison's dreams coming out of undergraduate with two language proficiencies? I mean, my resume, when you look at it in retrospect, looks like it makes sense, but I was kind of making it up as I went. And I actually think many people are, and they just, you know, kind of put this story on after the fact. I always loved languages. I'd studied French since I was quite young. I finished my minor in French at WashU in St. Louis when I was still in high school. So I knew that that was what I was good at. I, and I and also, it was quite naive when I started at Penn. I wanted to be a writer, I thought, and an internet. And I had this kind of international editor. I, it was so broad. Who knew? I had. I got this job the, when I finished undergrad at this small, small, small Japanese ad agency in Tokyo. And I was a copywriter. How did you, wait a minute. How did you get that job? I had a summer internship the year I finished at a company called Recruit, um, which it's a long story, but they had bribed the prime minister. And then they were hiring um, kids from Ivy League schools who studied Japanese. I mean, it was so random. It was a month long. I decided I would stay. I um, It was part of their PR, PR push. And I, um, I got this job at this kooky little ad agency of 12 people. I was an English language copywriter. I ultimately figured out that I was not a very good copywriter and I was a much better business person than I knew, which ultimately led me back to New York for a couple of years, but I stayed in Tokyo for almost five years and then ultimately to business school. And again, I sort of went to business school thinking I want to do this MA in international studies, but I, that's not going to pay me any money. So I better go do this MBA. I was, I was sort of like kind of begrudgingly going to business school because I needed some more money. And I ultimately, again, found that I was better at it than I thought, which is how I ended up at Microsoft um, in, in 2000 when I graduated from business school. And I mean, I think, you know, the themes are willingness to take a risk, willingness to lean in, willingness to set these big goals. But it's not like I had this idea of I want to be in technology that I was sort of making up as I went, to be honest. This is sounding like a great Netflix series, Allison. Maybe we should write it. <laughs> Sounds boring to me, but like... I, I'm imagining you at the quirky little ad agency writing English copy in Tokyo. That's just a good scene. That's a good mental image. You know, and Jim, it taught me so much because there, you know, there were all kinds of ways in which, like, um, you know, as a woman, uh, I was paid... Um, significant about half of what my predecessor was, who was a guy. Um, and they told me, um, as a woman, I was expected to literally make the tea and dust the desks. And I think Japan has changed a lot in the last 30 years, but, you know, and I remember thinking like, what do you want more to have this job and have a chance to, to learn something or to tell them that you're not going to make the tea. And Ultimately, after five years, I didn't make the tea anymore. So I changed the culture from within. But God, it made me mad in the short term. 
So it was a real live example of sometimes you just got to persevere through crap. <laughs> As I said, a great Netflix series. It's getting better and better. <laughs> so when was the aha that you wanted to be in tech? I mean, was Microsoft the best option you had or the best offer or was it a deliberate intentional? I what I, what happened was I um, I was at the Lauder Institute at Wharton and I had a summer job at Clinique. I really liked it. I was much more interested in international fashion. It was the first wave of um, the big tech boom. And I I thought, OK, I, maybe I should sign up for this interview at Microsoft. Microsoft and the auction points closed for zero. So I sort of stumbled into my interview, not interested, not at remotely planning to go. In the fall of 99, nobody wanted to go to Microsoft. It was all about going to internet startups. And through that process, and again, just sort of having an open mind and trying something, little by little over the process of interviewing at Microsoft, I thought, oh, I could have a different life and I could go into something I didn't even see and I could. I've been living in Tokyo and New York. I could go live in Seattle. And, and so it was really this, it, there was no aha. It was this slow moment of, oh, I didn't see that path, but there's a path there and let me just see what happens. It worked out okay, Allison. That was a good choice. Listen, I want to move to the creator brief. And my first question is, what's your favorite Australian brand, Australian-based brand? Oh, ooh. what's my favorite? I'm just going to say this because it popped in my head, but I don't know if it's actually, I don't know that I've ever really thought about it, but I actually like Vegemite. Other people don't, um, and it's very controversial, but I like how they stay true to who they are. And I like, I like salty things. And so I'll go with the easy one and say Vegemite. What's the, your favorite marketing campaign or idea or initiative that you've ever been a part of? For me personally, when we went private in 2013, we did a, a piece of creative called Beginnings, and it um, it was about back to the heritage of the Michael's dorm room. I think that we got that really right. The personification of the brand was really good. I thought the music was really good. That's one. The other was we did um, a piece of creative about Annie, the girl who could fly. We, we won a fair number of awards for that one, but it, what I loved about it is everyone's trying to show how technology helps enable people's passions. And we just got the magic piece right. You know, it, it just worked. Both of those examples are just beautiful stories. You know, one of, the, one of the things I talk a lot about is the combination of art and science. I believe in, you know, I believe in getting data on creative. I believe in all of these things. And I believe in the, the magic of, wow, that just worked. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? Most inspiring? You know, um, I, I would say my father is incredibly inspirational to me because he, uh, my sister and I were just talking about this yesterday because he really pushed us to be independent. Um, and, to, you know, we were talking about the fact that we went to Europe together when I was 16 and she was 18. And my father was like, off you go, you know. And now I think like, I don't know that I would send my 16 year old child unsupervised to um, your rail around Europe. But that kind of thing taught me to be brave and taught me to be independent. And and that's how I think I was able at 22 to say with a thousand dollars, thousand dollars, like I'll just go to Tokyo and live there and stay there for five years. What was your dad's advice when you were earning half of what the guy was earning and you were making the tea? It's not always easy and keep going. And, you know, one of the things on that subject, and it wasn't my dad, but, I, you know, if I think about my responsibility as a, as a senior leader and as you know, one of the, the two of the most senior women in the company is to acknowledge that those inequities still exist. And instead of being angry about it, like I have a unique ability to do something and to even the playing field and widen the band of, you know, how we make a more diverse environment. So I, I think that empathy has served me well as a leader. Who have been the one or two most influential business mentors in your career? So I worked for Jeff Clark, who is the chief operating officer um, of the company. I worked for him directly for a long time. And he taught me so much about the business. And he taught me a lot about how you think about precision, you know, the PC, the PC business, particularly parts of the PC business, really, really tough business. And you have to be incredibly detail oriented. And if you can make money in that business, I think you can transfer that discipline 
to so many other businesses that frankly are easier businesses. So I learned a lot from him personally. We've known each other for 14 years. I'm going to give you a chance. We haven't talked for a while, so this has been great catching up, Allison. But last word to you, anything you have for me, question, issue you want me to explore, someone you want us to host on the podcast? The, the pragmatism around understanding that marketing in the CMO, CMO role often has these real conflicts, and yet helping CMOs, the work you do to help CMOs find their voice and be brave, listening to stakeholders, so you're not tone deaf, but also bravery to say, this is what I believe and I'm going to go do this. That's, I think, where we don't always get it right in marketing. So I think there's a really important space there. Super. We'll continue to explore that, Allison. And maybe you can help us do that. I will. It's so good to see you, Jim. So good to see you. And thank you for this. This is a real gift, Allison. And congratulations on everything to you, the company, your team. It's a wonderful story. That was my conversation with Allison Dew. Three lessons from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, the importance of optimism and confidence as key factors for success for a CMO or frankly, any leader. Allison talked about the biggest difference between Dell now and the Dell of 14 years ago is that the group is optimistic and it's confident. It's tough to win and build a great brand if you're not confident. Second takeaway, the power of building an internal bench of leaders. Allison has put a lot of personal time and effort into building her leadership team, building a leadership bench, having succession planning as a core skill. She talked about the importance of promoting internal people to senior leadership positions when possible. Third takeaway, this was a masterclass in how to spend your time well. Allison talked about focus. She talked about spending time on unique things that only she can do. She talked about having a top three all the time. This was a great, great class in what a world-class CMO does to add the most value to her team, her organization, and her brand. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.